Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we got an art question to start off with. Uh, have you out there, have you ever been wandering through a museum and looking at old paintings, especially maybe paintings uh, from the uh, medieval Europe or from the Renaissance period, and you happen to come across a dog holding in its mouth maybe what looks like a big old rolled up newspaper that's on fire, or uh, as as many people on the internet have uh, characterized it, uh, smoking a joint or smoking a hand rolled cigarette. You know, I have to admit that I had I had never noticed this before, and I'm I'm not an art expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I feel like I've I've walked through a number of really good art museums. I mm-hmm. I've, I've enjoyed in the past diving into sort of detail oriented topics that involve paintings, mm-hmm. and yet I have never witnessed the the joint smoking dog or the firebrand bearing uh, dog before until it, uh, it was brought to my attention by a uh, an, an artnet.com uh, blog post or article uh, that we were talking about. Right. So I don't know how you came across this, but you were the one who sent it to me. And mm-hmm. this was a, a blog post by an American art critic named Ben Davis. Uh, that was very funny. And it is addressing the question of, why are there so many medieval and Renaissance paintings that depict a do- what looks like a dog smoking a joint? That is the way the author <laughs> phrases it. And it's it's quite amusing because it, it includes images, examples of this. And mm-hmm. when you start looking at them, yeah, it looks like these dogs, that they're, they're doing something. They're either right. holding some sort of a, a, a joint-like object or at the very least, they have fire. They have yes. fire in a way that seems totally out of keeping with what dogs actually want and do in reality. So a few examples. There is one painting from the 1660s by an artist named Juan de Pareja that features a very cute dog laid out on the ground with stubby little forelegs tucked up under his paunchy chest, and there is a bouquet of white flowers tossed to the ground in front of him, and then between his jaws he is clutching a foot-long white cylinder that is on fire on the end opposite of his mouth. And yes, it does look like some kind of giant cigarette or something of that kind, uh, but it could also be maybe a candle. I don't know. It's just a white thing that's on fire. Yeah, and the dog has a very relaxed vibe doing this. And it's just yes. kind of a chonky, relaxed dog. Yes. It doesn't look like, like oh, I'm going to burn your city down or anything like that. He's just hanging out. This is a smooth chonk. All these that I'm mentioning are, are featured in that, that article by Ben Davis, uh, by the way. But So there's another painting from the 1680s by Claudio Coelho. And it is a portrait of a certain religious figure, but uh, excluding the, the, the central figure for a second, in the bottom left of the frame, there's a black and white dog with a kind of skunk uh, coloration pattern, and he is biting what looks like a fence post that's on fire. And you can see his little underfangs and the lower canines holding fast to that burning stake. Yeah, now this one looks a little more fierce, a little more mischievous even. Mm-hmm. Uh there, he's also next to a spherical object. I forget what you call these um, in religious iconography of Catholicism, but it reminds me of a globe. And so I get kind of this feeling of the dog threatening to torch the earth. Well, and that also seems to be a theme because uh, here's yet another one that was uh, in, in Davis's post. So this is by Jose Gil de Castro from 1817. So this is a later painting. Uh, But once again, there is a person at the center of this painting, but in the lower right corner, there is a bizarre scene. There's this big old blue sphere, like a big azure beach ball. And then on top of the ball, there is a dog, except this dog looks ferocious. He is showing all his sharp little teeth, and he's digging into the ball with his claws. And once again, he's holding a burning stick in his mouth, except this time... He's holding the stick so that the business end, the end that's on fire, is stabbing into the blue ball like he is trying to burn a hole in it. Ah. So so what's up here? <laughs> well, Davis explains, actually, uh, this is religious iconography. These are animals that mean something. Uh, I, so I mentioned that in most of these artworks, the central subject is a person rather than a dog. And then there's a dog with a with a burning stick or a cigarette or whatever down in the corner. 
the person in the middle of the painting is almost always one of two people. It is either St. Jane, Santa Juana of, of Aza, or her son, St. Dominic, Santo Domingo, uh, who was a, a very important figure in the history of the Catholic Church, lived from the, uh, the 12th to the 13th century, and he was a Catholic priest who founded the Dominican Order in 1216. Uh, to read from Davis, quote, thereby setting the world on fire metaphorically in terms of spreading the faith. As a matter of fact, Dominican preachers were sometimes called Domini Canes, or the dogs of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. It's a very good medieval pun for you. Mm -hmm. uh, but so according to legend, St. Dominic's mother, St. Jane, was granted a premonition in the form of a vision from God. And in her vision, she saw that she was pregnant but with a dog, and the dog carried a flaming torch in its mouth. And then when she, in the vision, gave birth to the dog, it was running around, it darted all over the place with the torch and set fire to everything. <laughs> and this was interpreted to mean that her son would metaphorically set the world on fire, meaning he would preach a message that would reach the ends of the earth. And so uh, by establishing the Dominican order, I think, you know, they, they were largely, well, they had a number of concerns, but one of them was like preaching against heresies of the middle mm -hmm. ages. So if you're a heretic, you need to watch out for the dog with the flaming brand, right? Uh, because it is coming to set the world on fire. Now I have to say in some of these images, I totally get this vibe, you know, particularly that one that where he's not, he's not actually making contact with the globe like object, but he seems to be threatening to do so. Mm -hmm. I, I can see it. This is a vision dog. This is a dog that is bringing prophecy uh, from uh, divine realms. But that first guy, that, that, uh, that, that chonky one we were talking about, he, I don't know. He, he doesn't look like he's wandered out of any vision. He looks like the, the painter had a much beloved dog in his life yes. and decided, well, if I'm going to put in this dog of prophecy, I'm going to put my dog Shankers in there. And, uh, and that's who I want to paint. You know, this is something I often wonder looking at old paintings and sculptures of, of religious figures. So if there's a, uh, a painting of, of John the Baptist where he looks really hunky, is it because this per you know the the painter was filled with religious fervor for this scene involving John the Baptist and really wanted to depict that or is it because he like had a friend or a model or something that he really wanted to paint and he's like huh, who can I I'll say this guy is John the Baptist yeah yeah ultimately uh, I think in some cases that is the reality you have painters who want to paint say the human form and that are you know obsessed with uh, with anatomy and uh, mm -hmm. and, and how to, to properly relate that in, in the painting but how are you going to do that and get paid right <laughs> you know uh, um, well, but that's well this way. could be this could be the dog version right yeah yes. so <laughs> this is like you're saying this is his dog that he loves and he was just wants to paint the dog he's like huh, how can I oh I know this is the dog of the vision of Saint Jane yeah yeah and he's looking right at you it's a beautiful painting it's a very yeah. lifelike rendering of this dog yeah, Juan de Pereja, two thumbs up. I love your chonk. Now, all of this talk of, of holy dogs and uh, the you know, Catholic tradition, you know, this, this is all well and good. But uh, one, one question that, that certainly arises is, do we find anything like this anywhere else in the world? Because uh, on one hand, like I say, this is not something dogs do. Uh, this is not carry something... Carry fire around. <laughs> yeah, carry fire around it. Uh, in fact, I was looking around to find any account of this happening. Certainly any yes. like videos of like, oh, here's our dog. He likes to carry a flaming brand around the house. And I, I found virtually nothing. The closest I came was a video that allegedly is of a dog swooping in to grab a lit firework uh, before it can blast off. Yeah, exactly the same here. I was I was thinking, is this a natural phenomenon? Are there observed conditions where a dog will commonly pick up a flaming stick? And I was looking all over the place and found nothing really, except I, I found a couple of instances of people talking about dogs that had specifically been trained to carry a flaming torch or something. But it was just in the context of dogs being trained to do all kinds of tricks, like jump yeah. through a flaming hoop or anything like that. So I think carrying a flaming torch is something you could train a dog to do in the sense that you can train a dog to do just about anything. So it, it would stand to reason. It would seem possible that maybe this is just a one-off, you know? It, certainly if we believe this, uh, this story that this is a, a dog of vision and prophecy, you know, just sort of random dream imagery that comes together, uh, you know, or some sort of a vision, uh, some sort of a hallucination, whatever the, um, you know, the, the real world uh, situation might be. 
that maybe this is just something that occurs once in human traditions, and we're not likely to expect to see it pop up anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, I found one. I found another dog with a with a flaming stick, uh, and I'm not. I'm still not sure exactly what to make of it. How much of it we can sort of chalk up to, uh, you know, cultural convergent evolution, or if 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 ultimately we can get down to certain realities about dogs and humans. Yeah, humanity's relationship with the dog. Um, you know, I think maybe it's a little bit of both of those. So you might. So you're wondering, where is this? Where do we have to go to find this other dog with the flaming brand? Well, we have to travel once more to pre-Columbian um, Mesoamerica. We have to travel to the Aztec world and and also the the, the Mayan world, and look to the the the, the fire carrying dog in these cultures as well. Okay, I'm ready to go. All right, well, let's start with the Aztecs, and I'll come back to some of the, the, the Mayan examples. But uh, just to refresh, the Aztec world, this flourished uh, in the central Mexico from around 1300 to 1521. They rose out of obscurity among various indigenous peoples of the region and became a dominant power. Now, civilizations are, of course, a, a human affair, but of course, they always entail other species, including domesticated plants and animals. Uh, so we've discussed the importance of maize to the Aztecs, uh, as well as other crops, uh, but they also had some domesticated animals. The, their domestic animals included turkeys, which I believe we discussed uh, Aztecs and their turkeys in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, also bees. Uh, I think there are some cases for ducks and geese and maybe quail, but I, I see that in some sources, but not in others. So I'm, I'm not entirely certain that that is a, a definite or, or maybe even a universal uh, reality of, uh, of of Aztecs. Uh, maybe there were certain regions where they may have had some domestic ducks and, and geese. But for the most part, when you talk about the domesticated animals of the Aztecs, you're talking about the turkey, you're talking about bees, and you're talking about the dog. The old reliable. The dog's always there. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I, I really think it's important to keep in mind through all of this that I think that's that seems to be a universal thing. I think that ultimately the way that uh, like medieval Europeans viewed the dog uh, is largely in keeping with the way uh, Aztecs and Mayans viewed the dog as well. Uh, there are going to be some differences uh, as we'll discuss, but I think ultimately there's a lot about the dog being man's best friend in all of this. You know, the dog is the creature that sticks by you, and and maybe. Ultimately, like that is where we get this idea of the dog carrying the flame, because who else is going to carry the flame for humanity? (laughs) Is it going to be the cat? No. So I was reading about all of this in The Use and Significance of Animals in Aztec Rituals by Maria Confalineri from from 2009. And she points out a few important things here. First of all, she points out that the Aztecs were relatively poor in domesticated animals compared to various other cultures we might look to. Common people would only eat meat on special occasions. They had no draft animals. The turkey was ultimately their greatest domestic meat source, and their eggs also provided protein. But they also had dogs. And not merely one variety of dogs or just dogs in the generic sense. They had uh, several varieties of dog, and one of these was apparently used um, uh, almost exclusively for food. Mm Mm-hmm. And this was true of the Mayans as well, as Alan J. Christensen points out in uh, Popol Vuh, the Sacred Book of the Maya, Volume 1. The Mayans also depended on the dog, the turkey, and the honeybee. And these dogs were, quote, small, fat, nearly hairless, uh, and they didn't bark. But but here's the important thing to drive home is that they weren't just – it wasn't just a food species. They were both food and pet. This was a creature that would – that was a companion, that was a pet, but then also – under certain circumstances, uh, again, not every day, but, uh, but, but when necessary, it was also a food species. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, some of the details of the, the Aztec dog, uh, there were apparently, I'm reading, three different rough varieties. There's the medium-sized uh, fur dog, the Itzquintli. And this was also a hunting dog, so that's an important thing to keep in mind, too. Like, the dog also has this purpose in cultures around the world where it's helping us acquire food. Then there is the medium-sized hairless dog, and this is the Scholitzquintli, and this is um, this would this would have been a um, a dog that would have been used uh, as one of these these pet slash food dogs. And then there's also a short-legged furred dog, uh, and this is the uh, Tlalchichi, and I'm reading that this one might have also been a meat dog at times as well. 
Now, according to uh, Confalonieri, it seems that the, the hairless variety was primarily the food dog, at least in some regions, but again, only for special occasions. Uh, and there are Aztec depictions of their wrinkled, hairless faces. And these are worth looking up. Like, it's, it's undeniable. Like, this is not a, um, a you know, a lupine or a, a type of a, a dog face. This is not the face of a coyote. Coyotes were, of course, also around in the wild. No, this is the face of the domestic dog. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think we need to be careful, of course, not to equate the consumption of dog meat with cruelty to animals in this context, at least no more than we might equate any traditional historic meat consumption to cruelty. Because as Confalonieri stresses, these dogs were also pets, uh, certainly with the furred varieties, but even the hairless ones, they would have been well treated and they fulfilled the role of both pet and food. And there was a, a religious reason to treat dogs well, be they uh, you know, a hunting dog or a dog that would be used for, for, for food at some point. Uh, dogs were seen as psychopomps by the Aztecs, which is to say it was the role of the dog to shepherd the human soul across the ninefold stream to reach the center of the underworld, the afterlife of Mitlan. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah. And in some accounts, you you have to be very particular about the color of the dog. I found this interesting. Uh, the idea was that white dogs have just bathed and therefore they're not going to enter the waters. They're not going to get you across the ninefold stream to the center of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, black dogs, on the other hand, they will cross, but they can only carry their own souls. What you need is like a yellow dog. Uh, mm. That's the dog that's going to get you across the, the ninefold stream. Uh, that's going to carry its own soul, but also yours. Interesting. Now, Confalonieri shares a great quote from 20th century pre-Columbian art expert Elizabeth P. Benson on all of this. It kind of sums up and uh, extrapolates on why the dog. Why is the dog the psychopomp? Okay. Uh, Benson wrote, Dogs are appropriate escorts for the dead. They walk with their noses to the ground. They dig in the earth, bury bones, and hunt in burrows. They eat carrion and make themselves smell of it. They have night vision. They howl at night. They know what is there in the darkness. Relating to the earth, the dead things, to sounds and smells that are imperceptible to humans, dogs have esoteric knowledge and special connections with the underworld. Oh, that's a wonderful observation about the the inferred supernatural power of a dog just because of the different kind of uh, sense realms a, a dog can occupy. The, the dog detects something in the darkness before you do. They hear it before you do. They might be able to see or smell things that you can't see or smell, uh, or certainly smell things you can't smell. So you, you, would, uh, you would agree with this as a dog owner? Oh, yeah. Pretty much any dog owner, I think, would have the experience of the dog knows something around the house is going on before you do. They know that somebody's approaching the front door before you do. Or you take you maybe you go out back in in the darkness in in the nighttime and the dog knows something is there that you don't detect in any way. And maybe it's a possum on top of the fence or something. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, the, do- the dog is aware of things before you're aware of them. And sometimes things that you never become aware of, maybe it, um, it, it, it's attention perks up and it barks at something in the darkness that comes and goes, and then it's gone and you never see what it is that could, given the right mindset, lead someone to believe that the dog is maybe interacting with spirits or interacting with, with, with something beyond the human sense realm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, even if you're not going to the, the spiritual, uh, extreme of that interpretation, undoubtedly the dog is a protector. The dog is raising an alarm. Uh, even if it can't bark, uh, it'll raise some sort of an alarm that something is perhaps there that shouldn't be. Uh, it's going to play a role in protecting, uh, uh, the, the the domicile, uh, perhaps uh, also helping to protect the crops to some degree. Yeah. So that's important to keep in mind here as well. Uh, but there's another thing mentioned in Benson's quote that is also interesting about the, the association with, uh, with, say, death and carrion. Uh, I mean, so as, as beautiful and sweet and pure as, as dogs are, at least in my mind, they're also they're interested in disgusting dead things that humans uh, that will make the human senses revolt and that will make you want to stay away. But the dog wants to approach. Mm, yeah. So it makes sense. This is this is a world they understand. We may be repelled by and therefore who's going to guide you through the realms of death? Your good old dog. Now, one of the issues here is that the dog 
if this dog's going to guide you through the afterlife, it also needs to cross over with you as well. It needs to be buried with you. And thus, dogs were also used in ritual sacrifice by the Aztecs. But where does fire come into all this? You're probably wondering. So far, this dog has not been running around with fire. Uh, well, we're going to we're going to get to that here, um, though, though, certainly the idea of the dog guiding you through a dark underworld I mean, that that already leans itself to interpretations of a dog carrying some sort of fire, a dog lighting the way and being your guide through the darkness. Mm hmm. So the next fact worth mentioning in all this concerns the Aztec god Xolotl, described by Khan Falaneri as skeletal, dog-faced, or dog-bodied. Mm. Now, Xolotl is the twin of Quetzalcoatl, also described as the god of monsters and the patron deity of twins, both human twins and also just sort of general twinning in nature, anytime something seems to have a dual existence or nature. And the connection here does seem to be to the domestic dog, too. When we're talking about this, this god being dog-faced or dog-bodied, mm -hmm. it's not the coyote's face, it's, uh, you know, which was a wild scavenger and is also sometimes associated with uh, uh, the god of the smoking mirror, uh, uh, Tezcatlipoca. Depictions of Xolotl, including one discovered during the construction of the Mexico City subway system, includes details clearly associated with the hairless, wrinkle-faced domestic dog. So to be clear, food pet dog reflected in the divine image here. Not a wild dog or even a, a hunting dog. This is, uh, this is the, the, the hairless, wrinkly dog that is the face or even the body of the divine. So you've got a picture here of this this carving of the dog face. Yeah, and it is unmistakably doggy because you see the wrinkles in the skin and you see the kind of uh, relatively stubby snout compared to what you'd see with like a wolf or a coyote. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so there doesn't seem to be any mystery here concerning this god's connection to the domestic dog. So to the Aztecs, dogs were important. They were valued for their companionship, their loyalty, their food value, their protective nature to both the family and the crops. They were important enough to be the likeness of a major deity, a god of twins and monsters, but also a god of lightning and fire. Hmm. So this raises the question, right? Why is the dog also associated with fire in Aztec traditions? Well, uh, here we come at last yeah, to the idea of the Aztec dog as firebringer. Herman Bayer explored this in The Symbolic Meaning of the Dog in Ancient Mexico, published in the, in the American Anthropologist back in 1908. Now, referring back to the different dog varieties, uh, again, there's that medium-sized fur dog, or it's quintly. Uh, but it, it's quintly also just means dog more generally. And the, then the dog also played a role in the Aztec zodiac. So the day of this dog, uh, it occurs at the end and is therefore associated with the god uh, Miklantikulti, lord of the realm of the dead, who rules over Mictlan with his bride. And we see this in Mayan traditions as well, uh, as Bayer points out, where the symbol for dog is mainly a thorax and a skeleton. A thorax? Yeah. <laughs> a thorax? Like an insect thorax? Yeah, I was looking at examples of it and... Um, I, I don't know. The comparison is maybe a little lost on me because I'm just not used to looking at these characters. But um, I mean, I, I, I take I take the researcher's word for it. I mean, I guess mammals would have a thorax, too. So it'd be like the dog's chest, sort of. Yeah. Now, to come back to uh, Shalotl here, uh, Bayer writes that Shalotl's job is also to carry the sun through the underworld and is associated with a particular constellation in the night sky that was known as the fire sticks. And so the association here, Bayer writes, is that the fire drill method of fire production is, is linked to the dog and to this deity. The constellation here is possibly the Belt of Orion. Um, I've seen some, um, some back and forth on that, but I think the Belt of Orion is the, the popular uh, interpretation of discussions of this particular constellation. And he's also associated with the uh, uh, Pallades star cluster. And the, the fire drill method of fire production, this would be a friction-based method for, uh, for getting a fire going, right? For, yeah. It, it would involve a setup for rapidly uh, rotating one piece of wood on another to generate heat through friction that would uh, help uh, spark some kindling. Yeah, we, we discussed this a bit in our fire technology series of invention episodes. This would have you know, been a very early 
way to produce fire. And you also see Prometheus-type characters in other religions and traditions that, that are closely associated with the fire drill. I've seen the Chinese version of this as being referred to in translation as the fire driller. So it makes sense that, that the primordial connection uh, with fire production would be tied in with this technology. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also, there also does seem to be a connection as well between Xolotl and Venus appearing in the, in the night sky as a morning star. Uh, again, we're getting into this idea that, that this deity and or the dog carry the fire through the underworld, carry the sun through the underworld. And so this gets into the idea of like, where does Venus go? Where does the sun go when it is not in the sky? Well, it is, of course, traveling beneath the earth. It is traveling through the underworld. So I, I'm, in all of this, I have to stress that I'm, I'm not giving full justice to the complexity and richness of Aztec astrology here. Whole books have been written about Aztec astrology. Uh, and, and it, but it seems that, that there are complex astrological associations between dogs and death and fire, and that these worked in unison with less abstract aspects of the dog's nature and role in society, and it's just overall value to humanity. Mm-hmm. Now, in uh, in Mayan traditions, as reflected in the, the, the Mayan codices, the dog is also the fire bringer. Uh, I was reading about this in The Dragon and the Dog, Two Symbols of Time in Nautil Religion by Frank J. Newman. Newman writes, quote, The dog is often depicted in the Maya codices carrying a torch, perhaps a reference to the Maya tradition that the dog brought fire to mankind. And the head of a dog is sometimes part of the compound glyph, which represents the fire drill. Hmm. Okay. So if I'm understanding everything I've been looking at here, it sounds as if we have a few things going on sort of feeding into each other. First of all, astrological associations between dogs and fire. Uh, secondly, mythological connotations of the dog or dog-headed deities as fire bringers, and then connections, some mythological and some astrological, connecting dogs to the dead and to the realm of the dead. And on top of that, though, I, I, th- I think perhaps some manner of bleed over between control of fire as a major factor in human civilization and the importance of the domestic dog, which again, in this context, would have served pretty much all of the values placed on the domestic dog in the modern context, you know, companion, uh, guardian, etc., with the added context of being the, their only domesticated mammalian protein source. You know, again, they did not have the, the domesticated cow, the domesticated pig, all of these, these other creatures uh, to, to help provide the nutrition they needed. The dog was the only domestic mammal that could fulfill that, that need. Hmm. I've also read that at least in some Mesoamerican traditions and accounts, the dog is credited with discovering corn, uh, which would would also be a huge achievement on par with fire in some regards. Uh, So so again, we see these multiple connections here that that speak to the dog's role in civilization, like the fact that humans have mastery over things that enable them to to build civilizations and to keep going year after year uh, and to to pass on something to to their children. Uh, It's the fire, it's the the crops that are key, but also the dog. Yeah, this is a fascinating triangle that sort of says something about about the human species, uh, the triangle of humans, dogs, and fire. And uh, and so I, I wanted to transition from here to look at a little bit of the uh, the scientific evidence and and current leading hypotheses about the history of the relationship between humans and these two elements of of nature and of of technology. In fact, of fire and of dogs. Um, so one of the things I wanted to start off with here is remembering an interesting fact from some of our past episodes. We did a couple of episodes about. Um, about the history of fire on planet Earth. And, and the observation is this. Earth is sometimes thought of as the water planet, which is a good descriptor. There's a lot of liquid water on our surface. But I think it's also quite reasonable to think of Earth as the fire planet. Earth is really the only place in the solar system that allows for fire, certainly in significant amounts, because in order to burn, fire needs heat, fuel, and oxygen. And there are plenty of places in the solar system where you can find lots of heat, but fuel and free oxygen are much more scarce. The Earth is absolutely packed with these two things. It is packed with fuel in the form of concentrated carbon molecules produced by the biosphere, and it is packed with free oxygen in the atmosphere. 
which is also produced by the biosphere. Uh, so, so the conditions giving rise to the the potential for free burning fires actually are very much a product of Earth's biology, the presence of life on Earth. Beyond that, another interesting thing that makes Earth the fire planet is that like humans don't have to be there to start fires. Earth's weather systems naturally provide the the flint that continually strikes natural fires in the form of lightning. So, Earth is a place where where fire is not only possible, but fire occurs. Right. Now, to come back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, yes, Earth has fire, Earth has dogs, uh, but you really don't see a lot of crossover <laughs> between the two. Um, in addition to what I mentioned earlier, I mean, the most I really came across was the idea that, yes, dogs will warm themselves by fires, uh, be it a campfire or even some other form of fire. There are situations where dogs have been observed to take advantage of that heat. But other than that, they're, they don't seem to really interact with fire much, which makes sense. Most, uh, you know, most species, even those that have a life cycle that depends on periodic burns, it doesn't mean that their anatomy is, is, has, has evolved to actually deal with the reality of fire. Right. Now, there are some examples uh, we've discussed before on the show of animals appearing to, at least according to some reports, make direct use of fire. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, the uh, fire hawks of, of Australia, which have been alleged to, uh, say, use burning sticks to start fires to drive out prey animals that they mm -hmm. can then swoop down and attack. Um, I could not find any evidence of any species of, of canid or any carnivore mammal, for that matter, uh, doing anything like this. So, so this does not appear to be something that happens at nat in nature, at least on a regular basis. Right. But this did get me thinking about the history of human domestication of fire and of human domestication of dogs, both of which are fascinating and contentious subjects deep in our past. Um, so a, a few facts. First of all, while there's a lot we don't know about both of these subjects, I do think it's very clear that our human ancestors domesticated fire long before they domesticated dogs. So for a few facts about the, the general timeline of fire development among uh, ancient humans and human ancestors, I was looking at a paper published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, from 2016, by a professor of archaeology at the University of Liverpool named John Gowlett, uh, and it's called The Discovery of Fire by Humans, A Long and Convoluted Process. So in summarizing the existing evidence, Gowlett writes that finding evidence of fire use by really ancient humans and human ancestors is sometimes difficult, right? Because fire is not like, it's not like a stone artifact, though it does leave physical traces that you can uncover. And he writes that by about 1.5 million years ago, there are a number of sites occupied by our hominin ancestors that show signs of burned material consistent with deliberate fire use. Now, 1.5 million years ago is a long time ago, but, it, but this far back, the evidence is somewhat inconsistent. And it's worth noting that the presence of fire at a human or, or hominin campsite is not necessarily evidence of the ability to strike fire from nothing, say by using a fire drill or flint and, and uh, tinderbox or anything like that. Human Humans and human ancestors probably captured and preserved fires from nature long before we had reliable fire striking methods. Mm. But Gowlett writes that by the time of the Middle Pleistocene, so that would be between about three quarters of a million years ago and about 125,000 years ago, uh, quote, recognizable hearths demonstrate a social and economic focus on many sites. So the Middle Pleistocene seems to be pretty widely accepted as a time by which fire use became widespread and common among humans. Now, as wonderful as dogs are, fire is probably more pivotal to human history and evolution. It's, it's necessary for the development of almost all post-Stone Age technology, so all technologies based on metal involve the use of fire and their creation. Ba basically, all technologies after the Neolithic period would need fire in order to be made. Uh, this reminds me of the, the quote that outside of a dog, a book is man's best friend, but inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. Uh, I think <laughs> you need the a fire, Marx, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marx Brothers, so yeah, you need the fire. But even past the role of fire in, in creating a lot of later stages of human technology, 
it's even been hypothesized that fire has played major roles in in changes to human biology. Again, this is not something that's known for sure, but there are a number of theories that involve the intersection of fire and changes to humans, our, our ourselves, our own biology. So one major example is the cooking hypothesis, which I, I think we've alluded to on the show before. Maybe someday we should devote a full episode to that, talk about some of the evidence for and against. But mm-hmm. uh, this is a hypothesis put forward by a British anthropologist and primatologist named Richard Wrangham which argues that there is a link between the invention of cooking, which necessitates fire, and the shape of modern human bodies, guts, and brains. And in Wrangham's own words uh, from a 2017 paper dealing with some of the more recent evidence for and against this hypothesis, quote, The cooking hypothesis posits that control of fire leads to such a large increase in energy acquisition, and that means through eating, and reduces the physical challenges of eating food so greatly that the evolution of an obligation to incorporate cooked food into the diet should be recognizable by evidence of novel digestive adaptations and increased energy use. Yeah, we have to remember that with cooking, we're talking about to a very large degree, the externalization of human digestion. Yeah. Things that, that previously, if we were going to digest it, it was all going to have to happen inside of us. Now right. we, could, we could take steps towards the acquisition of those nutrients, sometimes nutrients that would not be uh, available to us if we did not cook them. Uh, we're able to do that outside the human body. Right. I mean, a sort of central to what Rangham is saying here is that subsisting entirely on a raw food diet versus subsisting on a cooked food diet, that is such a huge difference that you would expect basically different kinds of animals. Mm. That, that is a gigantic adaptation that would change. It would change the way your mouth needs to work. You would need to devote way less energy to having a strong jaw for chewing and crushing. It would mm. change the way your gut needs to work. And of course, the body could maybe spend that energy on other things. Uh, and like I said, maybe we should come back and do a, a whole episode on that someday because, yeah, I was looking at some of the, the arguments for and against this, and it seems like a, an interesting debate. Uh, but uh, So not to say that the cooking hypothesis is necessarily correct, uh, but I do think it's inarguable that fire is a major part of the development of all human culture and shapes our lives tremendously. Absolutely. So some use of fire by human ancestors probably goes back more than a million years. Uh, uh, The use of fire was common among human ancestors at least a few hundred thousand years ago. By most estimates, the domestication of dogs seems to be roughly an order of magnitude more recent. So if common use of fire goes back at least a few hundred thousand years, domestication of dogs seems to go back the past few tens of thousands of years. Now, on the scientific evidence for the history of the domestication of dogs, there's also a lot of disagreement here. But there was one recent development I've actually been wanting to talk about on the show uh, for a bit, and uh, this gives us a good chance to do it today. So there was a paper that was published uh, just earlier this year by Angela R. Perry et al., published in PNAS, called Dog Domestication and the Dual Dispersal of People and Dogs into the Americas. And this was a paper that was trying to settle some some ongoing debates and outstanding questions about the history of dog domestication and how that relates to the history of human migration over the continents. And so this study tried to use DNA evidence from both dogs and humans to try to trace the history of the relationship between the two. And uh, according to the authors here, their findings suggest, quote, The dogs were domesticated in Siberia by about 23,000 years ago, possibly while both people and wolves were isolated during the harsh climate of the last glacial maximum. Dogs then accompanied the first people into the Americas and traveled with them as humans rapidly dispersed into the continent beginning about 15,000 years ago. So I was reading a really good write-up of this new paper by David Grimm in Science that uh, fills in some more context on this and gives some texture to it. So um, uh, according to the the model put forward by the study, Grimm writes that uh, the people who domesticated dogs probably lived in the area of northeastern Siberia during the later part of the last glacial period, the last ice age. And these would have been uh, human hunters using stone-tipped weapons who probably subsisted on megafauna like bison and woolly mammoths. 
and the wolf-like ancestors of modern dogs may have actually been helping these humans in their hunting. And then from here, from this ancestral population in northeastern Siberia, the descendants of these proto-dogs went both east and west with their human companions. So east into the Americas and then west into Eurasia. So the team behind this study, they relied on uh, physical evidence in the form of mitochondrial DNA from a human and dog remains. Uh, mitochondrial DNA is more readily preserved over time in, say, fossil remains and animal remains than DNA from the nucleus of cells. And they concluded that all lineages of dogs that accompanied the first human settlers into North America shared a common ancestor that was uh, indicated by a genetic marker called A2B. And the researchers believe these dogs to have descended from this common ancestor population that were these domesticated or semi-domesticated dogs uh, born in the company of humans in North Siberia about 23,000 years ago. Now, imagining the sort of uh, setting of this ancestral population of, of wolves turning into dogs and the humans that were creating them, uh, the setting here is is something like 20, 23 to 31,000 years ago in this area of northeastern Siberia that uh, Grimrites was apparently relatively temperate compared to the areas all around it. And it was that way for thousands of years. So you have to imagine a place that during a, an ice age is, is surrounded on the east and the west by regions that are probably too cold and barren to sustain the lifestyle of, uh, of these human hunter-gatherers. And so basically they would have been isolated in these hunting grounds in northeastern Siberia. That was, it was kind of an oasis in which they could live. And there were also populations of wolves occupying this relative oasis in, in the last glacial period along with these human hunters. Now, we'll come back to that uh, oasis concept in a minute, but first I wanted to mention that we're not sure how exactly the domestication of dogs happened. You know, you want to be careful not to put too much confidence in people trying to tell a plausible story that could explain things because we don't know for sure. But uh, there's a common hypothesis on the domestication process leading from the wolf to the domestic dog that seems pretty plausible. And it goes like this. So you have humans who are hunting and gathering food and uh, maybe making these large me uh, megafauna kills. You know, they're killing a woolly mammoth or a bison or something and roasting meat over the fire at campsites. And wild wolves are obviously drawn to the smell of the food that humans have harvested. And then from here, it's possible that a selection process kicks in, and it would go something like this. Wolves that are too skittish around humans, they just don't, you know, they keep their distance. You know, they don't want anything to do with humans. Humans are too scary. Uh, so they stay back. Obviously, any wolves that were too aggressive or violent about approaching humans would react with, with violence, and probably those wolves would be killed. But wolves that happen to have behavioral predispositions causing them to approach humans but not approach aggressively would probably get to share in some of the scraps at the human campsite. They would somehow get, by their proximity to human encampments, get to maybe, I don't know, scavenge the remains, maybe gnaw on the bones that the humans tossed away, or maybe even humans would deliberately share with them. You know, who knows? Yeah, you and can sort would, of imagine how that uh, it, it could be a crossover between the two, like from toleration to perhaps active feeding over time. You know, it, it yeah, becomes totally. clear that these dogs are not a threat. And hey, maybe they're actually amusing. Maybe they're interesting to look at uh, and, and everything could build up from there. Sure. And so, again, if, if this hypothesis is, is in any way correct, these brave but docile scavengers, the, dog, the, the wolves who would approach but wouldn't be aggressive, they would benefit from the extra food rewards they would get from proximity to these human campsites. And from that extra food, they would have a survival advantage. And over generations, there would be these populations of, of wolf-like creatures or, or proto-dogs, these canids who would essentially have bred themselves to become friendly companions to humans. At some point, the humans would probably have found out that these proto-dogs were useful for hunting and maybe even for friendship and so forth. So again, uh, you know, we don't know that this is how it happened, but this is a, a, a commonly uh, entertained, plausible history of what could have happened here. And it's interesting that if there's anything uh, to this hypothesis, the process that led to the creation of dogs was in part their ancestors' willingness to walk toward the fire. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. The dog that tolerates the, the, the heat, the light, the dog that, that steps into the glow of the fire. Yeah. Uh, that article by David Graham in Science actually quotes uh, one of the, the collaborators on the study, an archaeologist named David Meltzer, who uh, I, I believe is on, on faculty at Southern Methodist University. Uh, and, and his quote is great. He says, these people were probably sleeping on the ground in furs, roasting fresh kills on the fire. If you're a hungry carnivore and you smell a mammoth barbecue, you're going to check it out. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I like the idea that, you know, maybe in the same way that cooking changed humans, something cooking could have possibly played a role in the attraction of these wolf-like ancestors of, of modern dogs. Yeah, and I find it interesting to, to to think about this, and then think about you know the end result with with mine and Aztec situation uh, uh, civilization. To imagine these Eurasian peoples uh, moving across the world uh, over into North America and then downward uh, towards Mesoamerica and South America, if what did they bring with them? You know, obviously they brought their cultures and their traditions and their knowledge, but they but they brought with them the fire and they brought with them the dog. You know, uh, yeah. a lot of the other things they may have brought with them in the short term would have given way to you know, new crops, uh, the, the new plants they might discover, new animals they might discover. But the fire and the dog were certainly constants. Now, one last thing I wanted to come back to with this study from earlier this year, there, there's one possible catch in this this hypothetical process by which uh, the earliest ancestors of dogs were were created. It might be kind of problematic to imagine that nomadic humans who are moving all over the place to to uh, to follow, say, their prey animals, you know, who they're the nomadic human hunters could have created these dogs because they would be moving and so encountering probably new population of wolves wherever they went. So th- there might not be enough repeated exposure to the same populations of wolves to create the dogs. But one of the things put forward in this study is that it would have had this sort of oasis place in, in northeastern Siberia that was surrounded on all sides by more harsh environments. So you would have the humans staying in a relatively stable location and wolf populations staying in the same uh, place with them. So you'd have them just interacting in close quarters for thousands of years at a time. And this could have given the opportunity to actually kick off and sustain this breeding process, turning wolves into dogs. Huh. Interesting. You know, all of this reminds me of, a, of another little piece that came up because in, in a weird way, it, it has a little bit of the of the, the Catholic tradition, certainly has the, some of the Mayan traditions, but also some of these ideas we've been discussing uh, d- dealing with the hypothesis of, uh, of, of dog domestication. I was reading in E.J. Zilowowski's The Encyclopedia of the Bible and its Reception, Volume 6, and, um, and uh, I just want to read this little quote from it here. Morris Siegel, to demonstrate the fusion of Spanish Catholic and Mayan Indian traits in the religions of Indians in modern Western Guatemala, recounts uh, a cultured creation story he recorded there in 1941, in which the child God, which the, the author says equals Jesus in this scenario, son of our Virgin Mother, gathered together the meat bones from his uncle's feast, planted them, and built a corral around the place. In three days, all the animals in the world had grown from the buried bones, and the uncles, jealous, opened the corral and released the animals. Yet the dog was one of the few that remained, whether willingly or simply out of a failure to escape, to live with human beings. Whoa. I like that because it, uh, again, it kind of gets into an idea about the dog. Like, is the, does the dog stick with us because it is clever or because it is dumb? Because the dog is, uh, and I, I think it's ultimately neither of those. But, you know, the, the idea that, like, why is the dog uh, the animal that seems closest to us, that is, that is man's best friend? Uh, but then also this account involves slaughter at a campsite, you know, it, it involves the bones of the dead. So we get that connection to this idea of the dog as the, as having an innate connection to the realms beyond death, but also this connection to human cooking. Yeah, totally. I, I also like the way that this, I don't know, this, something about this vision of the dog makes it both the most and least mysterious of creatures. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like the most familiar, but also has one of the most intriguing histories that we, you know, is, is somewhat obscure to us. Yeah, yeah. The idea, like the dog has just, the dog is there. The dog has remained there. Um, yeah. 
even if you don't want the dog anymore, the dog will will stay. Uh, <laughs> which is kind of reflected in this story too. The jealous uncles are like, "Get these animal, get these bo- animals out of here, hanging out around our bones." Uh, the dog doesn't go. The dog is here to stay. But I have to say, I, I do really like this idea of the dog as the fire bringer, and the dog and dog is mm-hmm. the dog carrying the fire for humanity, lighting the way for us into the dark. Uh, because this does seem to just it, it kind of lines up. Uh, with a lot of the the attributes that we we recognize in our relationships with our pets, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, particularly with the dog, you know, this this is our buddy. This is he is a guide. He is a guardian, and and perhaps has esoteric knowledge of the the great beyond. <laughs> All dogs are wizards. Yeah, yeah. And so the next time you're you're making eye contact with your dog, just remember this animal knows the way to Mictlin. <laughs> Now, obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there, especially dog owners. Uh, I'm sure you have some thoughts on all of this. I do want to drive home. The Please do not try and give your dog anything on fire because of anything you heard in this episode. Oh, yeah. We're, we're 100% certain your dog doesn't want any part of the fire, and only disaster uh, can occur if you try to recreate these uh, artistic and mythic images um, using an actual canine. Yes, children, do not try to recreate an active dog pyromancy you heard about on this podcast. (laughs) However, I will just throw this out there. If you want to get a dog toy that looks like a torch or a flaming brand, they do exist. You You can find them. I'm looking at a couple of varieties of these right now. So if you are inspired by this podcast and you want pictures of your dog holding a flaming brand, uh, you know, bringing some sort of vision uh, to humanity, uh, yeah, just go spend 9 to $17 and get yourself a, uh, a chew toy torch. Are, are, these, are these chew toys uh, merch created by the Dominicans? Um, I don't the know. the Vatican gift shop? Let's see. I see one that is labeled as Frisco Mythical Mates Viking Torch plus Squeaking Dog Toy. Uh, okay. It sounds lovely, and it's available for like nine ninety eight. Okay. I don't know why it's a Viking thing. Like, Vikings didn't come up in this podcast at all. It needs to be connected to the Mayans or to, um, to, 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 to Catholics. It needs to be a, yeah, a Frisco Mythical Mates Catholic Torch plus Squeaking Dog Toy or something. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this one out. Uh, but uh, yeah, certainly write in. Let us know. Tell us about your dog. Uh, and, and if you have a dog that has one of these uh, these chew toys, yes, I would like to see a picture of, of the two together. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, just check out the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. We have core episodes publishing Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have Listener Mail on Monday. We have an artifact on Wednesday. And we have a Weird House Cinema on Friday. That's our time to just talk about a weird movie and set the science mostly aside for the time being. Oh, and then we have a rerun on the weekends. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Stuff to blow your mind.com. Stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.